Welcome to We Built This Life. I'm your host, Jennifer Walker, and this is the podcast that mainly tells stories about entrepreneurs and small business owners and how they have built their working lives from the ground up. Today's episode features Emma Reisinger, the owner of Yellow House Farm, which offers ecological gardening services in Baltimore, Maryland. Thank you so much for listening today. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of 2023. I'm Jennifer Walker. I'm so glad you've chosen to spend your time listening to this episode today. And this episode features Emma Reisinger of Yellow House Farm. I'm really excited to have Emma on the show, as I am with all the guests who give me their time and tell me a little bit of their story and share their story with you. But for another reason with Emma, in part because we have this connection that I'll tell you about in a few minutes, and then also because I haven't had anyone on the show that has a business that focuses on gardening and farming. I was excited to hear her perspective, and I'm excited to share that with you. Emma's business, Yellow House Farm, began as an actual small farm in the Seabunt neighborhood of Baltimore. Emma began by growing fruits and vegetables and selling them at the 32nd Street Farmer's Market in Baltimore, and then through a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture, and she has since transitioned to ecological gardening. So that is keeping in mind the plants that are native to Maryland, where she is working, and to our environment in the state when planning her landscaping and gardening projects for her clients. And through Yellow House Farm, Emma offers three services, maintenance, so she can help you take care of your garden, design installation, so coming up with ideas for a garden and implementing them, and then coaching. So she says on her website that this involves advice, instructions, and recommendations that are tailored specifically for you. So on this episode, Emma is going to talk about finding her niche in agriculture, how Yellow House Farm has evolved since 2017 when she first started her business, And if you were new to this podcast, guests always talk about their successes, their challenges, things they wish they knew when they started their business. When I first emailed Emma, she's going to talk about one more thing that I think is important. She said that she was thinking that she didn't want to come on the show and romanticize farming. So she also talks a lot about the financial realities of farming for her and how challenging that can be versus maybe this image we have of farming and living off the land is this idyllic way to live. And kind of going along with that, she'll delve into you know, how we kind of figure out what's important to us when we're figuring out our work, right? Is it money? Is it flexibility? Is it something else? And what that looks like for her. I do wanna mention two things before we get started. The first is that I talked to Emma a really long time ago in early September. I am wildly late in getting this episode together. And as I was putting together this intro, I went to check the name of Emma's business. I've been calling it Yellow House Farm. And I went on the, I just Googled it just to make sure that the name hadn't changed. And I do see two websites, one for Yellow House Farm and one for Yellow House Garden Co. Ideally, I would email Emma and find out the name of her business and if it had changed before I actually put this episode together, but I have a lot of freelance work in February and I'm afraid if I don't record today, I might not get back to it for a while. So as you have been hearing me, you will continue to hear me and Emma refer to her business as Yellow House Farm, but I will check with her before this episode goes live and I'll make sure that the show notes and the Instagram posts and Facebook posts and everything else has the correct name. So whether you Google Yellow House Farm or Yellow House Garden Co., the services listed on the website and Emma's contact information are all there on each webpage. So either way, you'll have the information you need if you want to work with Emma. And then the other thing I wanted to mention was this weird connection that Emma and I have, kind of the small to more moment. 
Emma and I discovered that our dads were really good friends growing up. You know, we, we were in touch about the podcast and she's like, oh, I think I know you. Our dads were friends. And I remember her parents really well, even though it's been a while since I've seen them, since I was a pretty young kid. Our dad's friend group used to throw these, Emma called them epic parties. When we were younger, they you know, would have these parties at people's houses. They had this 4th of July party that we both remember at you know, somebody's house that had a pool and we would swim all day and hang out and then walk to the fireworks. And Emma and I never crossed over. I was one of the older kids in the group and she was one of the youngest or she might've said that she was the youngest. So I would guess there's maybe a decade or more in age between us. But it was funny to find that we had this connection and that we're talking all of these years later. So now that I've shared that anecdote, let's get into this episode and Emma Reisinger's story. Okay. All right. So Emma, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah. Thanks for talking to me. Yeah. Can you start off by just saying your first and last name and give a brief uh, snapshot of what you do? Okay. My name is Emma Reisinger and I run Yellow House Farm, which was originally a urban or an urban farm in the northeast corner of Baltimore City. And we've recently transitioned to being fully focused on ecological gardening. So basically using organic agriculture principles in landscaping, still in the city. Okay, great. I'm gonna ask you more about that. What part of the city are you in? Well, it's slightly roundabout, but I currently live in Waverly with my husband. When we met, we had both just bought houses. And the house that I I had just bought was the yellow house of the name. <laughs> So I, I no longer live in a yellow house. The yellow house is sold and has really nothing to do with me anymore. But that's where the business name came from is the, the big yellow house on a third of an acre in really like the very northeast corner of the city. So Baltimore City is like, you know, has kind of a rectangular top and it's like right in that corner. And it's in a neighborhood called Seedmont, but nobody has heard of that. It's like three blocks. <laughs> yeah, I have not heard of that. Yeah. But, but now we're in Waverly, and so the business has also changed base, so we're kind of, like, Waverly is very central, and then Hank's sister lives in Hamden, which is very well known, and we have a garage there, and then we also use, like, part of his sister's backyard for some stuff from storage and that kind of thing. Okay, okay. and then the yellow farmhouse, your first one, that it lives on through the business name. <laughs> <laughs> it lives on. It lives on through the business name. Yeah, the, the lady who bought it, actually, I, I'm kind of curious. I just sold it in December 2020. And the person who bought it is interested in, like, sort of continuing some form of agriculture there. So I'm sort of interested to see whether that happens. I think right now she's a little overwhelmed. Yeah, yeah. But that'd be interesting if she, like, kept it going. Yeah, I, I, I would love to see that. She occasionally reaches out, and we have a pretty good relationship. So was, was gardening and farming a part of your childhood or are they, are they interests that developed for you as you got older? Well, I feel like my, so my mother's side of the family, my dad grew up in, as you know, <laughs> in East Baltimore uh, near Herring Run. And my mom grew up in Western Maryland on a beef farm. So I always kind of preface that because I grew up in Towson, but you know, I have my mom's side has this agricultural side to them. And I grew up visiting my grandparents up there and spending time. It wasn't a working farm, but, you know, just spending time in the country. So that was kind of peripheral. But I really feel like I got the bug in high school. I was taking a plant biology class and 
my teachers kind of recognized that I was a little bit more than, you know, I was more interested maybe than the average student in the class. And we had a high school. So that was, I took plant biology in junior year. And then I ended up doing a lot of gardening at the school because part of that class was like starting a vegetable garden. And I sort of, like most of the other people in the class sort of went off to internships because they were the year above or they just sort of lost interest. And so I ended up sort of like taking over the whole class garden <laughs> almost. <laughs> and then the, the next year when it was my turn to do an internship for senior year, one of my teachers was like connected with Great Kids Farm. They were looking for interns. And so me and then one other person from that class went and worked there for six weeks full-time doing organic vegetable farming. Great Kids Farm is still in existence. It's city-owned property, but it's right on the edge of Baltimore City and Baltimore County on the west side. And it's over 30 acres tucked away behind like a school bus depot. (laughs) So it's not the scene that you expect, I guess. But it's, I don't know, it was just a really fabulous experience. It was the first year that this property, it had been a vocational tech school in the 70s, and then it had pretty much sat abandoned Let's see, I was doing this in like 2009. So yeah, so it had been sitting abandoned for at least like 20 years, I would say. So we were bringing this property that had stone and glass greenhouses, and it had this beautiful old stone building that, you know, had a gym in it. So we had a lot of space, and we had these buildings, and we had acres to work with, but it was really rough. And the greenhouses were like, when you were standing on the outside, it looked like there was just green kind of like a mold explosion in your fridge or something like it was just like the green touched every side when they were all these ornamental plants that had somehow managed to survive on like leaks from the roof. And (laughs) so we were doing a lot of like building maintenance, building repair and like just really scrappy. Now it's, it's a much more polished nonprofit organization with like training protocols and rules, (laughs) but it was such a great experience for me because I got to have a hand in everything from raising chickens to like building the chicken coop. And we grew a lot of microgreens and sold them to restaurants. And so I was like taking microgreens in my Honda Civic and delivering them to places like Woodbury Kitchen. And so I had my first taste of like interacting with chefs and going behind the scenes and like walking into walk-in refrigerators and restaurants. And we had a lot of autonomy and responsibility and it was just amazing. So that kind of got me hooked on farming and I was really interested and I sort of felt like this is what I want to do. But I also was really aware, like partly because it was that that first year and it was a really small team. It was like the farm manager, a couple volunteers and two interns. (laughs) And, you know, I was really aware, like the farm manager was really transparent about his salary and kind of his background and how much you know, how, how much of a struggle it had been for him to find a farm position that even remotely paid a living wage or a workable wage. And he ultimately left that position, I think, because he and his wife started having children and wanted like a little bit more economic security. And, you know, I was kind of looking at that as like, wow, this is a nonprofit that's got city funding. It has 501c3 funding. Plus, we're trying to sell vegetables and that kind of thing. And they're barely able to pay one person's very low salary. (laughs) And this was my senior year of high school. So I was kind of looking at that as like, okay, I want to do this, but I also know it's probably not a great career path financially, or it didn't seem really clear how to make that work. 
So I feel like I've probably just been, or pretty much just spent the rest of my life since then <laughs> trying to figure out how to make a living. And I, I, for a while, like when I went to college, my thought was, well, I'll get a degree and do something quote unquote professional and then eventually save up and eventually be able to farm and eventually maybe be able to switch to farming. But I mean, a model that you do see with small farms, um, particularly in sort of organic circles, is you'll have someone who has a more lucrative career and then farming becomes a second career and they're using basically savings from their first career to jumpstart the farm and make the capital investments and buy the property. And so that was a model that I had seen that seemed possible, but then I pretty much never got hired for a professional job. <laughs> so so that that sort of idea didn't really pan out. So what made you, when you were talking to this farm manager at Great Kids Farm, and he was explaining about the finances and everything, and you were starting to think, oh, it might be hard to, to make a career out of this. What made you want to stick with it anyway? I mean, I just, I just have, I've, I just love it. I mean, you, you're outside, you're doing active work. It's changes every day. So there's a lot of variety. And like the job of farmer is really like 50,000 jobs. <laughs> You can learn about anything and that's part of your job too. So I'm, I've been someone who's always really motivated by learning. So I, I think I would be kind of frustrated with a job where you're sort of expected to be kind of already knowledgeable walking into it and then just sort of stay there. I mean, most, most jobs, I think there's like professional development, but you know, I, I liked that you were constantly like on your edge of your capacity in time, terms of, you know, trying to learn new skills trying to be more efficient. And then there's like a physicality to it that is really appealing to me. And I hadn't thought about it very much at all prior to this, because my parents really pushed academics and are very sort of intellectual academic, like that's their jam. <laughs> but I always liked doing physical activities growing up. So like I was always like, I was never someone who did sports really consistently, but I was usually in like some sports team or did some kind of lesson. And I love just sort of being active. And as I got older, you know, it's like you're kind of sitting longer periods in school. And, you know, I was able to do it, but I really relished thinking on my feet and just moving around a lot during the day. Like, I guess I came into it also being really interested in sustainability. So I was leading the environmental club in my high school, and we were doing cool stuff. Like we one of the big projects that I had was trying to convince the administration and the board to invest in demand-controlled ventilation, which is not that sexy. <laughs> and it, it basically means ventilation that has sensors that figure out, like in an auditorium or a large space, how many people are in the space, because the alternative is that they're just working as though they're filled to the brim all the time. And like that really overtaxes the system and uses a lot of energy. Anyway, it, it, they have a really good payback period. So I was really interested in, in sort of that kind of thing. And I wanted a practical way that I could be doing things that sort of, I guess, contributed towards environmental efforts and climate change. So the farming kind of dovetailed with like, you know, some of the day-to-day -day stuff of like, okay, I like working this way. I like being outside. And then also ideologically, it felt like important activities to do. That's an important combination, I think, right? Yeah. And the environment that you <laughs> right. like and, the, you know, what motivates you as far as what you want to see in the world. And I'm not, yeah, I'm not like that. I guess 
this will probably be very obvious uh, over the course of our conversation, but I'm, I'm not that motivated by money. <laughs> so for me, like the, I think the ideology and like the sort of day-to-day work life were dramatically more important. So also in terms of like where that Venn diagram hits, those were the, the bigger priorities. Yeah. Yeah. Did you figure that out pretty early on? Like you knew what was important to you when you were a senior in high school? Kind of. Yeah. Kind of. I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I was always like, a pretty entrepreneurial kid. I always had little businesses going on. I won't get too into it, but I've but I've just I've been working in some capacity. I feel like I started when I was like seven ish. <laughs> so I I you know I say like money is not that important. I guess part of it is I always had this sort of confidence that I could make enough money for what I needed, and I had a sort of realistic idea. I think more maybe more than certainly talking to some of my peers in college. I think I had a more realistic sense of like what money like how it operates a little bit so also I had that going into it of kind of like well that like you need to make money but you know I sort of had a feeling of like I can figure that out yeah yeah so so you are we got up until when you're a senior in high school you mentioned college what did you study in college and where did you go from there I studied English which has truly never been that relevant um I studied that too I also was an English major it sounds like you've actually really used that though I mean, I guess there's there's still time, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I kind of I I was trying originally to be a bio a biology English double major, and I ended up losing the biology because I was not that interested in cellular stuff or the more chemical side of it. I was really interested in systems, and I was able with the English classes, I could take a lot of classes that involved like free choice of research assignment. So I was basically taking as many writing classes as I could. I got the minimum literature requirements, and I just used every class as an excuse to research agriculture <laughs> and write about it. So that's that was sort of my approach to college. And I was working all through college, and I became friends with some like farmers and homesteaders in the area. And and I got to like I did a lot of farm sitting and stuff like that. So I was really spending a lot of time, as much time as possible, not doing classwork and <laughs> just learning about farming yeah was agriculture at your college like an option of something that you could study not really no I mean I went to St. Mary's College so that's in southern Maryland and it's surrounded by farmland but agriculture I think really there are very few colleges in the on the sort of mid-Atlantic region I guess you know in like New England that kind of thing they don't really generally take it that seriously but, you know, you're surrounded, the physical environment was surrounded by agriculture. So it was not that hard to, like, find other avenues. Yeah. I love how you kind of made your interest work for you within the English major. <laughs> That's really interesting. <laughs> so what did you do after graduation? So after graduation, yeah, I applied for a lot of positions that I thought would be relevant. So I had edited the literary publication and I was trying to get into publishing, actually, That was what I thought would be my sort of golden ticket (laughs) to affording a farm, which maybe is really silly. I don't know. But so I was trying to do that and and just striking out in every direction. (laughs) So I got a through a long chain. I mean, it was like 15 people, but this long chain of connections, I got forwarded a job offer to be an au pair in France for a year. And I grabbed it. There's sort of like, a lot of circumstances, but I never did study abroad. And I had taken French in high school, and I was very afraid 
And I thought that it would be kind of a good thing to like face some fears. So I went to France for a year. I had this background in in the language, so I was not totally clueless, but I really, I, it was it was good. It was a good experience on a personal level. And then from there, I was visiting a friends. I had friends in grad school in England, so I actually would take bus trips from where I lived in Lyon, France, to Paris, and then London, and then from London to Oxford, and that kind of thing. And I was visiting people, and I, I just was really jealous of their <laughs> sort of intellectual community. So I applied to grad schools, and after the year in France, I went to Dublin for a semester and started a graduate program there, you know, in hopes of finding that community, and it, it just, no one was showing up to class. <laughs> it was oh, yeah. it was kind of terrible. Everyone just wanted to go to the pub. It was, it was, a, <laughs> it was a great, I mean, I loved living in Ireland, but it was, a, it was kind of, again, like, I was never, like, someone who, I always did well in school, but I didn't really like school in some ways, but I did sort of want to seek out being able to talk about ideas with people. And I sort of was told and felt that school was a good way to do that. And then after high school, I was just consistently disillusioned about it. So I, after a semester in Dublin, I was taking environmental policy coursework, and I was like a third of the way through the degree. And I sort of hit this point where I either needed to take on debt or leave. <laughs> so I decided to leave. So I went back to Baltimore. And prior to coming back to Baltimore, or like sort of while I was in France, I guess what I was sort of looking at is this, I saw a sort of a fork in the road of either, you know, trying to get into more white collar work. And I was really interested in working for the EU on environmental policy. And so that sort of shaped my decision to go to Dublin. And then, you know, I was really disillusioned by it. So the other alternatives that I had been thinking about was going back to Baltimore, where I'm from, partly because of the land is pretty cheap, relatively speaking. And you have this kind of combination of relatively affluent metropolitan area, especially if you kind of widen the net to the DC region. And you also have like pretty inexpensive urban space. So that sort of means that you might have, you know, lower transportation costs for food, that sort of thing. You know, if you're trying to transport vegetables to a wealthy urban center, Baltimore seemed like kind of a good place to do that. And I had the family connection, so I knew I could come and live with my parents <laughs> if I needed to, you know. And so I had, I, there were sort of a few things going on. At the time, like when that was going on, that was a few years after there had been a lot of publicity around urban farming efforts in Detroit, which are still going on, but like a lot less trendy, I guess, at this point. Around like 2006, 2007, 2008. So when I was doing my high school farm internship, there was a lot of discussion because, you know, these post-industrial cities were becoming increasingly vacant and then they have this wealth inequality issue and a lot of people desperately need work, but the, you know, industrial work is gone. So there sort of was this move towards using abandoned land typically using like raised beds and in some cases hydroponics and containers to make agricultural spaces in like these otherwise sort of like dramatically devalued property, particularly in cities that have sort of like a also a, a big demand for like lower skilled work opportunities for people. So Detroit definitely had all of those conditions and there were some people, I think like Will Allen is like a big name, and Van Jones, very involved there. 
also kind of tied into like these ideas about like the green economy and, you know, Obama was the president. <laughs> it's like more things seem possible. And so there, there was all that kind of in the background. And so Baltimore hadn't totally blown up like in the same way, but there was definitely like a cohort of people that I sort of vaguely had been following since my time working at Great Kids Farm. And that some of them I met while working at Great Kids Farm, because after the semester ended, I also went back and like continued to volunteer there over the summer. Yeah, so I sort of like knew there was a little bit of this community and there was an organization called the Farm Alliance. So I was sort of stoked about getting involved. And so I went back to Baltimore. I got a position with the Farm Alliance eventually. It took a minute, but they were hiring through AmeriCorps. So AmeriCorps is basically a service learning sort of job thing through the federal government. Yeah, I did one of those programs too. Yep. You did it? Okay, yeah. Yeah, and there, I mean, there's a lot of pros and cons. I, I think a lot of it has to do with like what type of site you're working at and sort of like what you're doing. So I got that position and that led to like really kind of getting into the urban farming community in Baltimore a little bit. And then at the meantime, I was working on other farms and then I was also working as a cook in um, some pretty nice restaurants. But yeah, so I, w- I was cooking, I was farming and I was trying to work with this sort of farm advocacy organization. And so that was kind of the mix of things that I found in Baltimore. Yeah. So you were pretty busy at that point, right? You were balancing in the AmeriCorps work and cooking and... Yeah. Yeah. It was like a... It was... I usually had at least three jobs up to five or six. Five or six jobs. Wow. Well, like one a day, you know, <laughs> more or less. Yeah. It was... I don't know. It was very chaotic. And I had... I was also doing... I mean, people always like kind of laugh at my work history because I usually just have... I've always had many jobs going on. Eventually, like when I started Yellow House Farm, I had gotten it down to just cooking and starting the farm. So that was relatively calm. So I was cooking at night, which generally... It's a weird schedule. You generally go into work between... Well, it kind of depends what you're doing, but generally between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. And sometimes I could go in as late as like 3. And then you would get off between an early night would be maybe 10, 1030. And then I worked some nights until 1.30 or 2 in the morning. So that was kind of my like paid work period. And then in the morning I would wake up and I would try to get up by, you know, 7-ish and then get started working on the farm. <laughs> that was kind of how I was doing things when I got when I got started. You know, earlier I was saying I had kind of envisioned maybe having this like lucrative job and then using that income to like fund the farm. And and being a line cook is not a lucrative job, just in case anyone's not clear about that. (laughs) (laughs) And it's really hard work too, right? But you said you like physical, it's kind of physical too, right? Like farming would be. It's really hard work. Yeah. You're standing up. I mean, I, I also, I don't smoke. So a lot of people in kitchens, like their breaks are smoke breaks. And you can like kind of go out whenever you need a cigarette. I, I did occasionally bomb a cigarette because I was just like, I need a break, you know. <laughs> I need an excuse. But but I would I would rarely step off the line. Very exhausting physical work. You're definitely standing pretty much the whole time and moving around. And there's a lot of stress and pressure, especially on a busy weekend night. There's just a lot. And and restaurants are always kind of trying to get away with like the fewest people they can get away with. So there's always like, well, if you're not putting a dish out 
for the front of house, you're prepping for tomorrow or you're cleaning or you're, you know, there's, there's no breaks really. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, I, I love it. I actually, I think a lot of people in the restaurant industry burn out and I don't feel like I did it long enough to burn out or it just like really dovetails with my work preferences. <laughs> I found it kind of addictive. Emma worked in restaurants from 2015 until March 2020. And of course, that's the date, right? March 2020. We can hear anyone say that. We're instantly transported back to the beginning of the pandemic when everything was closing and we were home for so long. And obviously that had a big effect on people who worked in the restaurant industry. Emma kind of wanted to transition away from restaurants anyway, and she'll talk more about that. She wanted to shift because of her farm, Yellow House Farm. She had bought the Yellow House, where the name for the farm comes from, in 2016. And then in 2017, she got the farm going. And she mentioned that she was working afternoons and nights in the restaurant and then getting up early to work on the farm and kind of balancing the two things. And this led her to want to transition to focus just on farming. That had kind of been her goal all along, to have her focus be the farm. I most recently was working in a restaurant in the winter between 2019 and 2020. And then I actually, I got, I got sick with some kind of respiratory virus in March 2020 and called out of work and never went back. And at that point, Yellow House Farm looked like about one third of the business, both in terms of like money and my time and energy and all of that was landscaping work. And then two thirds was growing food for uh, the farmer's market and a small CSA. Being a line cook and then farming, the seasonality was the opposite season. So it sort of worked, but it was also stressful to kind of go back and forth between those worlds. <laughs> and I, I really wanted the farm to work as my full like livelihood. And I also really wanted to be able to hire people. And so I was kind of barely making any money. I never really took on debt for the farm, but I was not really making money. So Initially, I started doing the landscaping as a way to sort of, I don't want to say make a guaranteed bottom line, but it was a way if I knew, okay, I have five clients, I'm charging this much per hour, I'm working this many hours, I know I have that income, and I already had the tools, I already had the vehicle. So it didn't, it, I wasn't adding very much overhead, and I sort of was able to give myself like a little baseline income from the landscaping work. And I had done landscaping stuff for different people very part-time over, you know, one of my many, many jobs. <laughs> you know, a lot of the techniques, like if you can weed a row of vegetables, you can weed a garden. You just have to know the plants. That's the, you know, it's the same technique. It's just different plants. So that was sort of, it felt like in some ways like a natural fit. But in 2020, it was really kind of a come to Jesus experience, you know, with the pandemic. <laughs> because you, you have this like moment where everybody really, well, you, you really had, like, I had a lot of push on both sides. So I had, you know, there was an, a phenomenal interest in people wanted to grow their own food. They wanted to buy locally. They wanted to support local farms. So there was a lot of demand on the farm side. And then there was a lot of demand. People wanted to expand their outdoor living space. They wanted to, you know, feel better about the space that they were now looking at 24-7. Or, you know, they wanted to, like people who had previously, maybe they'd worked away from the house and they were out every day and they didn't really care about their garden. All of a sudden, that's their living room. That's their only place to entertain as the pandemic sort of progressed, you know, and people started to feel comfortable with that. So there was a lot of demand on both sides. So there was a combination of, well, 
you know, do I grow more food, that sort of thing. My like stress response is to just frantically sit down with spreadsheets and, and business plan as fast as I can, basically. <laughs> so, you know, I was like frantically trying to work out like, well, what if I change, you know, this production or what if I do that or what if I do that? And one of the things that's really hard with farming that people I think don't really recognize is that so if you buy seeds and you're typically buying seeds between October and December and then you're planting, you're starting to plant in January in a greenhouse or something like that. And then you're, you know, people are kind of like, oh, you're planting in like May. And it's like, no, by by May, a lot of decisions have already been made. <laughs> and to some extent, you can change things. And, you know, you, you can usually find seeds, although in 2020, it was hard to find seeds. But you are kind of locked in to that year. So like I had bought seeds based on a farmer's market business plan. And then there was a lot of uncertainty about whether or not we could go to the farmer's market. And that kind of crop selection looks really different from the crop selection, the mix that I would use for CSA. So I, I sort of pivoted to a CSA, but I was kind of not that prepared. And I was doing delivery CSA. So that was a lot of just driving. And I don't know, it didn't, it, none of it felt very efficient. And I also was kind of looking around and there were all these other amazing farms in the county that really weren't that far away. <laughs> And they were able to sort of scale up quicker and provide a lot more food and just kind of do what I was trying to do, but much better. And so I sort of increasingly felt like what I was offering as a farm was this like niche luxury thing. And, you know, it was mostly supported by friends and family. And I was like, that's nice, but it didn't feel that vital. It really didn't feel that vital when it came to the pandemic. And it was, it sort of, there was this like increased level of urgency and around everything, you know, it sort of was like, oh, this, I just feel silly, honestly. And, and I also felt there were things I wanted to be doing with volunteering or just sort of other ways to spend my time. And I was spending, you know, every minute just trying to produce a tiny amount of food and a tiny amount of income, you know, and I just felt like so stretched that that was really frustrating to me. And so as I sort of prioritized, like, okay, I want to be able to have a viable business and not just be sort of scraping by and relying on roommates to be able to pay my mortgage and, you know, that kind of thing. And the landscaping was very obviously more productive financially. And then, you know, it did feel kind of like this higher level of importance for people because there was this sort of desperation around being outdoors. <laughs> so I, I was able to find some of my sense of like, I guess the sort of philosophical motivation or something sort of came into it. I want to ask you more about that, about your shift to ecological landscaping, but I just wanted to go back for a second. So what were you growing when you were, you farmers markets then CSA? Yeah, well, I, so, I mean, one of the big differences is like, so I was kind of discussing like the different crop strategies. The farmers market, you typically, you know, you look at your data from the previous year and say, okay, these things sold really well. I could sell, you know, maybe I sold out of these things. So that means I could sell more. And then these things didn't sell at all. You know, you're kind of like, look, so you typically are going to try to specialize a little bit more, or at least that was kind of the data that I was getting. And there were some crops that you could get like an insane price per pound or price per unit. People go to the farmer's market partly to find some unique items, I guess, and like stuff that has like a really short shelf life that you can't get in the grocery store. The flip side of that is like for CSA, so that stands for Community Supported Agriculture. There's a ton of different models. It can look like a lot of different things, especially now because there's software programs that allow for a lot of customization and 
different farms do it different ways. But the way I was doing it was basically trying to have like a well-rounded vegetable box every week. And so what I would try to do is have one or two types of greens, a few types of like the prime seasonal things. So, you, you know, in the summer, it's like tomatoes, that kind of thing, peppers, and then have like an herb or two and then a few, like something unique. So I would try to throw in something that was like a little different, you know, <laughs> Yeah. but like the bulk of the box was really like greens, you know, more of like your, what I, what I realized people want in CSA typically is things they're familiar with and things that they know they can use. People who get CSA are like generally really, really hate food waste. <laughs> so they're really not looking to have like a challenge. <laughs> But then like something little, you know, like I would have something that could be like a little bit maybe unusual, but just a very small quantity so that people could figure out how to do something with it. And also, yeah, and also like the quantities are different too, because for the market, you tend to sell better if you have like a bunch of the same thing. Like people can see it from farther away. They feel like there's a sense of abundance and they're more likely to buy maybe two or three units instead of one. Well, with the CSA, you almost have the opposite thing. You do want like a a usable quantity. You don't want to give someone like one tiny thing that they need to go out and buy four more to make a dish. But you want to have generally not enormous quantities because, again, you don't want people to feel like, oh, my God, I have, you know, three pounds of kale every week. How do I deal? You know, (laughs) so you're kind of like you want to trying to find that like just enough quantity with a CSA, whereas like with the farmer's market, you know, if you have good product and then you build a market around it, people, people may be coming back week after week to get quite a bit of the same thing. So it's like just a totally different strategy. The other thing I did for both was I grew, I I built a greenhouse in 2017. And I, so I produced a lot of my own transplants. And that was one way to sort of save some costs on the farm. But I also could sell like, tomatoes, peppers, cucumbers, kind of like basil. I could sell tons and tons of basil seedlings. So I would sell seedlings at the farmer's market early in the season before I had a lot of vegetables ready. And that actually kind of became one of my specialties. And that's sort of part of how I got into some of the gardening work as well, because people were sort of like, oh, you grow plants, ah, plants, you know, <laughs> like, can you garden at my house? You know, that was like, that started to be a question that I got a lot. And I was like, well, why, why not? You know, <laughs> yeah. who would ask you that people you met at the markets? People I met at the markets, I did plant sales at my house. So I would have like, I would get a table out and have, you know, I would pull stuff out of the greenhouse and have, you know, Saturdays, usually sort of Saturday morning sales. And people would come by. And and also, I the way that I was growing food at my property, you know, it's a residential neighborhood. I was trying not to rock the boat too much. So I didn't just like till everything up. Like I kind of started making these like really small but compact, like densely planted beds. I really was growing on not even my whole acreage, which was only a third of an acre. I mean, we're not even, you know, it's not that much space. But I was I was just growing really, really, really intensively on a very small amount of space that I put a lot of compost and kind of very carefully managed the transplanting timing. And I did a lot of things with like spacing and stuff. But anyway, as a result, my yard looked, it didn't really look like super farmy, like it looked like more just like a really abundant garden. And I also had a lot of flowers. And I just, anytime I had extra room, I was trying to like, I would start perennials or just like herbs and kind of let them go wild or I'd put put in 
you know, fruit producing bushes, that sort of thing. So it felt kind of landscaped as well as it was like a heavily food producing garden, if that makes sense, more than like people didn't really come step into it and think like farm. So I think people also just sort of who who came to the place sort of responded to it on a more psychological level or something. (laughs) And so I got a lot of interest from that. And then as soon as I started working on other people's properties, you know, a lot of times I'm in like a row house front yard and then people walk by and they're like, oh, do you do this? You know, like you live here or are you working? You know, that's like a question I get a lot. (laughs) And I'm like, I don't live here. Here's my card. You know, you pass it on. Yeah. So I, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what ecological landscaping is and maybe give a couple of examples of some spaces you've worked on and how you approach the project and things you're thinking about when you are designing a space? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, so the ecological gardening, something that I really didn't realize until, because I had never hired like a landscaping crew of any kind, (laughs) you know, I mean, I, I was doing that work myself. So I didn't really realize how like not environmentally friendly kind of conventional or like standard landscaping practices are. And so when I started doing this, I was just kind of like, I'm just like gardening and it's nice. And as I got more into it, I've sort of realized that actually what I'm offering is fairly distinct from what a lot of companies offer. We don't spray, you know, the beginning of the business was a lot of hand weeding and cutting things back at the right time. So like, one thing with certain types of weeds is with annual weeds, they usually, they always are going to produce a lot of seeds. And that's usually one of their big strategies of success. So with some stuff, you can actually just cut them really low to the ground. And that actually has a couple benefits. The soil is not disturbed. So you're not bringing up seeds that are like lower in lower levels of the soil. So they, they can't germinate. And then also you're like, you have a lot of soil microbes that are doing really great things for the soil health and you're not disturbing them. And then as long as you cut them before they produce a viable seed, you're sort of reducing the population for next year. So that's something you do on organic farms, but it's also like translates to home gardens pretty well. And, you know, just things like, like a big strategy for me was sort of like compost and mulch, compost and mulch. (laughs) And that translates very directly to gardening. So, uh, you know, we don't really use chemical fertilizers or sort of like highly processed fertilizing agents, which aren't like the worst thing, I guess, but they're just kind of harsh. And, you know, we live in the Chesapeake Bay watershed and people put way too much fertilizer onto like grass and their gardens and shrubs and all that stuff. And a huge part of bay health issues comes from eutrophication, which is basically too much nutrition. So too much nitrogen going into the bay, which creates these algal blooms, which then blocks light from reaching like lower levels of the bay, which has these bigger knock-on impacts. So Anyway, so reducing the, the amount of nitrogen that you're putting in gardens that really don't need it, and then also using forms that are kind of slow release, so things like composted leaf mold, which sounds kind of gross, but it's, it's amazing. It's, it, that's like this region would have been a forest, a temperate forest. So we've really changed that. Uh, <laughs> and we can't totally, you know, we can't really go back, but you know, it is a helpful model to look at like the way that the forest sort of helps feed itself or generate itself and so on is through dropping leaves. And then those sort of break down and slowly release nutrients to the plants. So we're using a combination of like planting primarily native plants and then using 
like I use a lot of leaf grow, which is a commercial product, but it's, it's just leaves. <laughs> it's just leaves that have been broken down. So you're kind of speeding up that forest process, but it's a very natural thing. And then we do a lot of mulching, both for, you know, that helps manage moisture levels. So if you have too little rain, it helps protect the roots so they're not drying out as quickly. So if you have rain and then you have a mulch garden, the garden will stay kind of cooler and moist, more moist for longer. But on the flip side, if you like have too much rain, having that mulch layer can kind of help absorb it similar to a sponge. So it's not just like flooding and then gone. So like lots of mulch, lots of compost, a lot of like cutting and pulling versus spraying. (laughs) Those are like a a lot of the big things. I mean, we're always trying to like, you know, always trying to get more biodiversity. So I do plant, but that's kind of, I don't think that's like the biggest way that I'm sort of doing an ecological thing. But, you know, more more plants, trying to have plants solve problems, that always feels like a big win. And then, yeah, so so how does that relate to, like, specific, I guess, kind of types of clients or, like, lines of work? I actually just went through this process with my sister-in-law, who does a lot of cool work for web design and, um, like, helping companies and nonprofits figure out their strategy or whatever. But so we were talking about kind of, like, case studies or sort of, like, who's your ideal client or whatever. I kind of say I have like two big buckets. So I have typically people who are like older homeowners who have been in the same house for maybe 20, 30 plus years. They love their garden or they've been the gardener, you know, for many, many years. And they're kind of looking to hand that over to somebody else, but they're maybe have specific preferences or they just like, you know, they've been doing things in a kind of ecological way and they don't want to just hire someone to come in and like spray a lot of chemicals, leaf blow and like get out of there, you know? (laughs) So they're looking for something different when they hand over the reins. And then I also get a lot of people who are new homeowners. And a lot of times they're coming from like an apartment or maybe like a house that had a yard, but they had roommates and it just like wasn't their responsibility. And so I get kind of the gamut from people who are like really into it, but they like are overwhelmed and they don't know where to start with the process or they're not into it but they want to have like a more functional space. So they kind of, you, I get a lot of overwhelmed people, <laughs> but you know, but they want to have like a more functional space in some way. So in some cases that might mean like putting in hardscaping and then adding some plants either in containers or like a raised bed along the sides or like just changing the layout. In other cases that might mean doing like a big clean out and like, you know, a lot of times when a house goes up for sale, it's a many months long process and the people who are moving out are focused on like packing, (laughs) not gardening typically. So a lot of times even like a well-maintained garden that might've been great for like 20 years then gets abandoned for a year or so in the process. And then people move in and that takes a while to like settle in. So I get a lot of calls that are kind of like, you know, I don't even know what's in my yard. (laughs) (laughs) Can you help me? You know, that's like, and and for me, that's really that's kind of my why I think is like, I just, I like problem solving. So when someone comes to me with a problem, I'm hooked, you know, it's like, I'm just like, all right, we're on it. (laughs) And then being able to do that in a way, like, I think a lot of people are kind of like, they, they may not be aware of like the options, I guess, but like, there is a weird bifurcation where the landscaping industry is, I'm picturing sort of three groups of people. So there's like the landscaping industry, there's environmental education and advocacy 
and then you have like homeowners. And the thing that's weird, there's kind of these disconnects. So like the environmental education and advocacy is like very geared towards homeowners. <laughs> and a lot of it is like, you should do this, you should do that, or you should not do this, you should not do that. So I get a lot of people who are like, well, I, I like, I know I'm not, I'm like, oh my God. But anyway, um, but so you get a lot of, there's a lot of education and sort of like shoulds being pushed at homeowners. There's like a growing amount of that, like towards industry. But I think the landscaping industry is in some ways, like economically, there's more, there's more money in it. And there's more sort of, I guess, power or like, the combination of economics and just numbers and everything, there, there's more heft, I feel like, in the landscaping industry than in the environmental education sector. And the environmental education sector really focuses on, like, individual decision-making. And then what I see a lot is, like, homeowners who, like, they pivot, they turn around, they're like, well, I love this, I'm on board with it, I buy organic food, I go to the farmer's market, you know, like, I don't drive my car, you know, or I don't even have a car or, like, whatever, but then they're like, wait a minute, I don't have a car. I don't know how to get mulch. Like, you know, like they, they kind of face these barriers to actually like executing some of these things. And then they turn to the landscaping in the industry. And, you know, I think a lot of people, it's like a lot of the plant selection is really generic and you're using these plants that are not native plants that maybe require a lot of sort of supplemental support to like thrive or whatever. And maybe the practices are a lot of times I think it's not fully transparent. So I think a lot of people don't really know what's going to happen. And, and there's just so, some level of just like that in itself makes people uncomfortable, especially if they have a level of awareness of like the things that could be harmful. If you are someone who, for whatever reason, is trying to outsource this work, there's sort of a frustration that there aren't that many places you can go. <laughs> so I actually think there's like an enormous opportunity because people are really into it, but not everybody wants to be their own gardener or can always take care of their garden at every stage of their life. So there's a huge demand. Yeah, yeah. I would think a lot of people would be really drawn to your approach, like how you approach spaces and the things you're thinking about as far as the environment and everything. Do you um, do you still have a farm in addition to, to your landscaping work or have you fully made the switch? I fully made the switch. So we, we sold the property where I was doing the bulk of the farming. Yeah, but my husband's house is like a tiny row house on a very, very tiny corner lot. So <laughs> I have a little personal garden and that's that's pretty much it. Although we are talking about, I mean, it's something I would still like to be doing. So it's like, I'm talking about ways to integrate or incorporate some kind of peripheral agricultural stuff. Like I'd like to get into more transplant production again, Like, I, but that's just something I sort of haven't had the bandwidth for. But so I do have... A spot where I could build a greenhouse potentially. So I'm thinking about stuff like that. And then we're also talking about getting, I used to have chickens and rabbits to process farm waste. So I was, the rabbits got the sort of like higher quality vegetables that they could eat. And then the chickens got like everything else and food that had spoiled and just kind of regular yard waste, like whatever. And the combination, that was like my first stage of composting. And then I would compost that just sort of regular composting after that but the chickens did a great job in like breaking everything down and making everything smaller so that it composts faster and also pooping into it so like upping the nitrogen levels now I don't have any animals doing that so I'm thinking about ways to like start doing that again now that we've moved and everything but we're talking about maybe getting goats you know 
and doing like a goat chicken system because the debris is a lot bigger and woodier. So rabbits wouldn't really make sense. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm kind of trying to figure out ways like to maybe pull some agriculture back into it, but yeah, for right now we're just hundred percent landscaping. Yeah. That's really interesting using the animals to, <laughs> you know, they can eat some of the spoiled food and, and up the quality of the compost. Yeah. With. They're great. I, you know, I highly recommend it. Yeah. So do you find that landscaping is a seasonal business as well? I would think it would be, but maybe not. Yeah, it it is. It's like not, not as much as you might think, I guess, because there's, there's a lot of like pruning in the winter. And then I've started offering hardscaping and some sort of small scale construction as part of the, the Yellow House Farm landscaping side of things. You know, there's landscaping, which is typically, it's kind of like the all-encompassing term. And then hardscaping would be elements like a patio or it's kind of the hard things, <laughs> the, the structures that you might put in a garden. So it could be just a pathway. It might be a fence. Sometimes it's like a whole infrastructure project. So it might be a retaining wall or, you know, maybe a series of something to do with drainage or that kind of thing. I think when people envision it, a lot of times it's patios. <laughs> it's a big one. So my husband is a mason, and so he does some of that. I actually started offering that before, he, like while he was working for other people, but he's kind of subcontracting for me a little bit now. <laughs> and he he does dry stone walling, so that's one of it. As we we sometimes do some dry stone wall as part of projects, that kind of stuff some of that can go quite late into the season. So dry stone wall work, as long as you have your foundational trench set up before the ground freezes, you can do it even in freezing weather. Anything that requires cement or mortar, it needs to be a little bit warmer for the mortar to cure properly, but it doesn't need to be hot. <laughs> so we can work, you know, if it's, in, if it's consistently in the 50s and it's not dipping below freezing overnight, you can still do a lot. We've done like fencing projects in early spring. So there, there's a lot. There's a lot you can do. I started the landscaping side with just me. <laughs> so I try to be able to like work consistently and to balance the workload. I try to tell people, I'm getting better at this, but I try to manage expectations around sort of like when I can do things seasonally. So if I have a construction project, if someone reaches out to me, let's say in May, and they have a construction project, a lot of times I'll say, look, I'm planting. I only have a narrow window that's really ideal, but I'd be happy to do this project in July when it's, you know, we're pretty much just weeding and building and not planting very much. Or if people reach out in September, then I'm going to say, okay, we can do this, but it probably is going to happen in like October, November, December. So I try to like push things around so that the seasonally appropriate task is happening. It can be a little challenging to make that really smooth because sometimes like the last few winters and falls, we've had like pretty long, dry summers that lead into like pretty hot falls. So I've been kind of pushing back planting and then sort of struggling to balance like the construction projects that I'd planned and the planting, you know, <laughs> because it's like still too hot to plant. But yeah, so it's it's less, but it definitely, I mean, April through the end of June is like just absolutely bonkers. We've talked about challenges a little bit. Are there any other challenges you want to share in relation to being a business owner, working in your specific industry, and how you've addressed them? 
<laughs> I guess just something that I think is always like important to discuss, like we, we were talking a little bit on the email, but the financial side is, is really challenging to like figure out how to do that. I mean, one of the biggest things I learned from the farm was like, I started Yellow House Farm with about $9,000 in the bank. And that was money that I needed to buy equipment, buy seeds, and pay myself. <laughs> and part of the reason I was why I was continued to cook for a lot of the time that I was starting the farm is I was preparing the land. You don't get paid until you have a product going to market with the farm. So you have to do a lot of things and spend a lot of money before you make anything. And I understood that on an intellectual level, but I didn't really calculate it very well. And, you know, there's a lot of romanticization of like, do it for the lifestyle, you know, <laughs> and it's like everyone wants to have three chickens or whatever. But it is really challenging if you have real financial constraints, you know, it's really challenging to make it work. And I feel like I started the business with not nearly enough money to like confidently proceed, I guess, you know, and there are certain things where like refrigeration is huge. If you're harvesting fresh vegetables, they need to go to people immediately or they need to be refrigerated or they go bad, you know, particularly in July, it's a hundred degrees. And when I started out, I didn't have a covered wash station. So things were in the sun. I was doing a lot in terms of like trying to work in the shade or trying to like pull things into the basement while I was harvesting like the next thing, you know, <laughs> but just really not ideal. And I didn't feel like I had the money to do things even like buy a steady like tent to be able to have shade. That was kind of stuff I was doing like year two. And so I just think, you know, I sort of was like really ideologically motivated and there wasn't even a lot of like warning, I think, within, you know, conversations about farming about like, I don't think anyone was like, oh, do you have a business plan? You know, <laughs> and I mean, I did, but it wasn't a very good one, you know, <laughs> and it didn't really take into consideration like my own expenses. So I had like a business plan that acted as though I personally didn't need to make any money. You know, I had a plan that was sort of like all of this money is going into supplies, not like paying my cell phone bill or, you know, paying the internet bill or paying for utilities, including water. You know? <laughs> so like that was all kind of unrealistic. You know, I also wasn't working a, a lucrative job. So I was essentially working one physical labor job to pay for another physical labor job, which is just insane. So it sort of creates a lot of challenges, both financially, and then, you know, sort of how that ripples out to like personal relationships and you know, family relationships and like, just kind of everything is affected by that. And I'm still not in a place where I'm like making anything close to really a comfortable living. But I guess the flip side of that is I have a fair degree of flexibility, which is really valuable to me. But particularly when I think about hiring, I mean, there's, I think, you know, since the pandemic, there's been, or like started, I think brought to the surface in the pandemic, there's all these conversations about labor and everything. And, you know, working as a line cook in a restaurant is one of the lowest paid jobs. My first cooking job, even if I had been there for a long time and was doing, or a long time for a cook, <laughs> it's a very high turnover. But I was doing, you know, I had pretty high level of responsibility. I was basically directly working under the chef and I was making less than the dishwasher. <laughs> so these discussions really need to happen. And when I'm thinking now, you know, as, as a business owner, I'm thinking about hiring people. I am hiring people this year. I have two like real steady part-time employees and one of them is, is sort of phasing out, but I'm actually in the process of hiring two more people. So I'll have three part-time people. 
it's really challenging as someone who comes from this background of working low wage wage jobs and sort of being undercompensated. Like, I don't want to create that again. I don't want to recreate that again. So a big motivation for me financially is less for my own sake, but just thinking about like being able to offer a decent job. And I think that also ties into a lot of like other social justice concerns because Baltimore is a majority black city, but like most black people in this city do not have the kind of disposable income that allows them to take really low paying jobs on farms or, you know, working for free for farmers to gain that experience. The path into farming right now for a lot of people is very like personally funded (laughs) or it's funded because they have like family money of some kind that they can rely on. I mean, in my case, I was able to start the farm with a Honda Civic that, you know, my parents didn't need anymore. So I didn't have to buy my own vehicle, you know, (laughs) and like now I, I have a truck that I worked up to, but I had that initial, even just that is kind of out of reach for a lot of people. The farms that I was working on, at one point I was getting paid $10.50 an hour, which was considered sort of like the high experienced rate, you know? <laughs> That's barely enough money to pay sort of basic living expenses, let alone like save up and, and start your own thing. So, you know, it's just sort of like a cycle that I don't want people to feel trapped in when they work for me. You know, I mean, another approach is to go more cooperative. And I've actually looked into doing that pretty seriously. I feel like that might be something down the road. For now, the people who are working for me are not really interested in having the level of responsibility that comes with cooperative ownership. So the hourly labor like makes more sense for them. But it is just something I think about a lot. And it's definitely one of the motivations between switching over because there's definitely more of an opportunity to make a viable business. And I feel like I can offer a better job for people. So I'm thinking about that a lot. So the three major challenges I would say are sort of like money, time management, and anxiety. The anxiety is like me personally, (laughs) because I just tend to be kind of an anxious person. I think it works both ways where it's like sometimes that impedes me from doing things where it's like I have anxiety built up, but it's actually going to be fine. And then also sometimes I think it can be motivating because I do tend to be anxious. So I check up on things or I like double check things or or whatever in some cases, and that that can be kind of a useful thing. But in time management, I think is just a challenge with anything that involves, you know, there's a lot of scheduling, there's a lot of client communication, there's a lot of like, can't do everything in the rain, you can't do everything if the ground's frozen. So just kind of working with both the natural conditions, and then the human conditions. And then, you know, later today, I'm going to a wedding on a Wednesday. (laughs) So just things like that that come up. And then the money is like a really challenging part. When I started the farm, you know, organic farming is this very romanticized thing. And I don't think I had very much guidance or even like questioning of whether I had a decent business plan in place, like whether I'd really thought through the expenses and stuff like that. And I started with what felt like a lot of money, but, you know, wasn't. (laughs) And I quickly was spending money, tools, seeds, you know, you order something like the compost that I was buying, which was probably the most economic way to do it, but it was still about a $500 delivery. So, you know, I started out with like $9,000 to put towards the farm and my living expenses for the year, basically. (laughs) And, you know, $500 very quickly takes a big chunk of that. As the owner of a business or the owner of an enterprise, to some extent, I think it's pretty normal for most small businesses to start out where the person founding it isn't making a decent amount of money. 
but you have that ownership, you have that equity, you have the control, you have the flexibility. And ultimately, you're the one who decided to do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And I think uh, when you were talking about the challenges that I like what you said about money, time management and anxiety, I think a lot of people will identify with that, like even as like a freelance writer, I like I'm like, yeah, those are the three, even though the the nuances of, might be different. So what about on the flip side of that? What are the things you are most proud of when it comes to your business? I am kind of proud. Like I, I do feel like the business has just grown. I'm always proud when we, when you look back at the end of the day and it's just like clearly like a good job. I'm really proud of a lot of the work that actually happens. I think like where I feel like the worst about myself within the context of the business is when I'm like really slow getting back to someone or if I drop the ball in communication because there's like so many things going on. And the, the flip side of that is like when I'm like prompt and which I'm not always, but you know, when I am prompt and responding to someone and I can get out there and like meet the need and make it happen and kind of exceed expectations. So the work itself, I feel proud about the work and it's really nice. I also think it's not something I think about a lot or that I recognize a lot with myself, but I'm kind of constantly pushing the edge of my capacity and my like knowledge. And I'm always, I think I'm pretty good at balancing both projects that are comfortably within my wheelhouse and then projects that are kind of opportunities for growth, you might say, <laughs> or just like things where I really don't know what I'm doing. It would be another way of looking at it. <laughs> uh, but, but just like strategically pushing that edge most of the time and trying to balance it. Like I think about it as like, there are a lot of projects where I've never done the thing before and that's kind of scary, but I also feel good about being able to do that and still do a good job and still deliver like a good result. Well, what about, what about advice? Do you have any advice for other entrepreneurs or business owners? I mean, I think just like good advice for anyone is to like really figure out some things about money <laughs> earlier rather than later. Cause I, I feel like that was something that particularly in the sort of like eco space, like people don't want to talk about money very much. You know, it's like, nobody's really not nobody, but very few people are like getting rich within this space. So I think just like being realistic about that. And I think you can make a living, but you know, you're not going to just like automatically make a living. And it's also probably not something that's ever going to be like hugely lucrative. So you have to be kind of smart about it. And so I think just like, you know, don't forget about the money when you're thinking about like all the, you know, the pollinators and like soil health and the health of the bay. It's like, you also need to be able to pay your bills. I think everyone does a better job in what they're actually doing when they're not super stressed about finances. So think about that layer is like one thing. I think with like more ideological or like sort of passion motivated things, it's easy to like forget that piece. That's like a big, big piece of advice. And then I think another piece of advice is just whatever time you spend hiring, like getting to know people, like the people relationships are the really critical piece of the business. So whatever you're doing to like, like I feel like for the size of the business and for the amount of work we're doing and for like the hours that I have people working, I probably spend like a disproportionate amount of time doing things like one-on-one -on -one meetings or, you know, we might go out to a happy hour or like do things kind of outside of work a little bit. I just think that like any time you invest into people, whether that's training or getting to know them better and like understanding what makes them tick and, you know, how you can kind of better orient things around them or like vice versa like that's always worthwhile and I think that's another thing that a lot of like business advice kind of treats employees or the idea of labor as like totally interchangeable and it's just not you know <laughs> 
And like one of the two people who started working for me in 2021 and like she's now phasing out and it's a very amicable breakup, I would say. <laughs> but, uh, you know, she like when I when I started working with her, I kind of thought that I needed more help on the installation, like design install side. And she was more interested in that. And as I've kind of like things have progressed, I realized that I actually need more more labor hours going towards maintenance. So it just didn't, you know, it kind of ultimately I could see like she wasn't super happy and like the things that I would need to do to make her happier within the business were not the direction that I wanted to go with the business. So we talked about it, you know, and it just made sense for her to find another path. But partly just getting to know her and like really understanding like what motivated her was like a way to sort of do that peacefully. (laughs) And, it, you know, and it sort of wasn't like, oh, you're, you're failing to live up to my expectations, but I could just kind of see like, you're not really happy with the things that like I need done the most. So, you know, and on the flip side, like when I hired the two people last year, originally, I kind of thought might, I wasn't as sure about her because she didn't seem super confident in herself. And like, I don't know, I like, I, I kind of wasn't sure how things would go. And she was looking for fewer hours and it sort of seemed like the other person had landscaping experience and then, you know, one of them did, one of them didn't. So I, so thinking about all of that, I, I sort of thought one thing might shake out. And in fact, like the other person has really, you know, she's gained confidence and she's taking on more responsibilities and she's like has a more well-rounded skill set. But we've sort of sorted this out by like getting to know each other better and like having a lot of conversations like working alongside each other. Now she's like a huge asset. So my feeling is like, okay, what can I do to keep her involved and engaged? And, you know, so we continue to have conversations. Basically, if I hire someone, we have conversations on a regular basis about like, how are things going? Like, what do you not like doing? What do you, what are the problems for you? And like, are these problems that we can solve? You know, (laughs) whether that's like, for her, I think she initially was very interested in the plants. And I think actually, as we've gone about it, she's gotten sort of more interested in learning about construction. And she's also like more open to taking on administrative work. So we're doing some of that. And you know, her big thing is like, she's like, I love everything about this work, actually, but I just need to make more money. (laughs) So I think it's like, okay, how can we do that? And with the people that I'm hiring, we just had two working interviews yesterday. And one of them is sort of like, I think he's kind of interested in starting a business or like more interested in learning about how do you start a business? How do you run a business? So I think for him, like a valuable thing will be transparency about sort of the nuts and bolts of the business and like not only using his labor, but also sort of explaining what we're doing and like letting him kind of see the back end processes so that he has a better sense of like what that means and the possibility or like whether that's something he doesn't want to do, you know. <laughs> I think just getting to know people always pays off. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it all sounds like really good advice for being a manager, knowing who, knowing who's with you, what their skill sets are, what their interests are, and you're drawing on that problem solving that you like to do or whatever and figuring out the right place for the people who are working for you. So I, yeah, that sounds like great advice. Yeah, I think I think it's hard to switch sometimes from that mode of like a being a founder or like starting something and probably doing all of it yourself to what can I delegate? And then also like, how do I manage people? How do I manage people? <laughs> That's a totally different skill set. I guess the position I'm in right now, which I also think is like, 
I don't know, potentially kind of helpful advice is like, I think it's worth thinking about sort of like a theme for the year in the sense of like, this year has really been a year of like growing, expanding, like taking on more clients, taking on more projects, raising my rates, hiring and like solidifying how do you do payroll, like that kind of thing. And next year, my sort of the theme that I'm thinking about is stabilizing. So that's kind of leading a lot of the decisions that I'm making now. So I'm just trying to sort of train people now who are going to continue working for me in the spring so that we go into the spring season with a fully equipped team (laughs) and people who are kind of onboarded already. I'm trying to get a little bit more standardization around like pricing and sort of if someone approaches me, like what's the path to becoming a client or like what's the order of operations. So just sort of solidifying systems and stabilizing things. And I think that all of that will contribute to making more money next year. So my my big goals are sort of like more stability, more money, (laughs) Um, which, you know, really like I've been kind of in this like, especially with 2020 and obviously the chaos of the pandemic, but just, just sort of a chaotic, like a lot of things are happening. There's a lot of demand. I'm sort of scrambling to meet that and like always scrambling to get back to people and answer emails and get all the work done. And, you know, and, and I really, I think I have a good feeling about next year going from this sort of like chaotic growth to like, okay, let's just like take a deep breath and try to stabilize and like make this work better for everybody. Okay. I really want to thank Emma Reisinger for being on the show today. I, I enjoyed learning about her business. As I said in the beginning, it's a different business model than those I have had on the show before. And I am probably somebody who has indeed romanticized farming and gardening in my past. And I thought it was really interesting to hear her perspective and her experience. Usually I end these shows by talking about what is sticking out to me from the episode, just kind of a little recap of the key points that guests mention that resonate with me or that that I'm thinking about. But as I said in the beginning, I just talked to Emma so long ago in the interest of time and in really wanting to get this episode out soon. I'm going to forego that today and leave you with your own thoughts about the things that resonated with you from Emma's story. So I want to say thank you so much for being here today and for listening and for spending some of your time with the We Built This Life podcast. It means so much to me, and I'm glad that you were able to hear this amazing story from Emma. If you've ever listened before, I'm glad that you were able to hear these amazing stories from the other guests that we have. I really believe in supporting small businesses, and I was just listening to a podcast the other day about a small business owner, and I was thinking, oh, I want to support the small business. Something just happens when you hear people talk about their work and their stories, and then you want to support them. If you're listening to this podcast, it must be something that's important to you or you must be a small business owner yourself. And I want to thank you for your commitment to small business. And I'll see you soon. Thank you for listening today to We Built This Life. If you enjoyed the show or if you have constructive feedback, I would love it if you would leave a review on your favorite podcast player. You can also come say hi on Instagram. I'm at We Built This Life. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, please get in touch. I would love to hear from you. Have an amazing day and I'll see you soon.